Welcome to another episode of Outside the System. In this episode, I spoke with Mitch Earle, COO of Praxis, a college alternative that helps students get into upwardly mobile careers without any student debt. Our conversation hit a bunch of different topics today, like the education system and why everything costs so much, debt, apprenticeships, how education can improve in the future, and much more. If you find value from this episode, you can support Outside the System on Fountain or any other value-for-value-enabled podcast player. Let's get into it. So today I'm joined by Mitch Earl from Praxis. Mitch, great to have you on today. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for thinking of me. I'm excited about the new podcast and, you know, delighted that I can contribute a chapter here for you. It's going to be a fun conversation. I'm looking forward to it very much. Yeah. So I think we've probably followed each other on Twitter for a while. I think that's how I came across you. And I, I'd come across Praxis, I think, through stuff that you had shared. thought it was really interesting. Something you may actually not know about me is my first company was in the education field, but it was more in like, well, it was in higher ed, but it was basically getting high school students into the colleges of their choice by doing like a peer-to-peer, essentially a peer-to-peer network where high school students could connect with students very similar to them at colleges that they wanted to attend. So kind of like the virtual version of like the on-campus student tour. This is also 10 years ago. So that sounded innovative at that time. Now it's like, yeah, now it's like table stakes. So I know, you know, I've been close to the higher ed world. I stay on, you know, I I keep up to date on it just because of what I had worked on. So when I saw practice, I was like, this is actually really interesting. And over the years, I've gotten away from like really believing in the current model of higher ed. And I think it's very bloated and underperforming, let's say, for the students who are paying those bloated prices. So maybe let's just start with like, what is Praxis? What are you guys built? And uh, yeah, and how and, and just what are you working on? Yeah, so Praxis is a year long apprenticeship program for hardworking young adults who want more than college. Um, that's the easiest way to describe it. There's so many young adults. I don't I think unless you live under a rock today, it should be obvious to you that there are so many young adults who who want something different than the traditional the traditional model traditional narrative and this includes everything not just education but that's that's the space that you know i'm drawn to is helping those young adults figure out how to start their adult lives as strong as possible that first chapter of their careers in particular that's what we're all we're focused on and the traditional model of college it's really ineffective in the world we live in today outside of maybe a few specific paths where there are either legal restrictions or there's a lot of inside baseball in the hiring process that's based on, you know, the program you came from or who you know as a result of of a, you know, where you went to college or whatever, but by and large for the average young adult, you know, especially the young adult who doesn't know what they want to do starting out, there are so many cool opportunities out there that they probably didn't hear about if they went to traditional school and they don't know how to go explore their current career interests in an effective way that doesn't put them in a in the poorhouse for the next 10, 20 years while they're paying back student loans. They don't have a really good outlet for going and doing that. And that's very much where the idea of Praxis came from is What's the most practical way to go out and explore your career career interests, build skills, start your career? And on the flip side, you know, how can we provide a better talent pipeline for that undiscovered talent that businesses are always hungered in and eager to to find? Yeah. And so I guess one other question that as you were talking came in, came to my mind is like, how did you end up 
working on working on this so yeah, i know you said education is a part that draws you you know did you work in higher ed before did you work in like i guess how did how did you land land in in this particular role yeah so it's it's quite the unconventional route for sure i was your typical like academic sellout early on you know i had my choice of colleges and full ride offers and was the you know the 4.0 valedictorian with great test scores and looked great on paper and always thought i was going to go the ivy league route like that like the most prestigious academic credentials possible was what i was after and and i had a very I had a very specific vision for how I wanted my life to play out. You know, I wanted to go to medical school. I wanted to be a pediatric neurosurgeon. I had very, very ambitious goals from a young age that would have taken me through and required me to to follow the, you know, not just the traditional route, but the most prestigious form of the traditional route. And so uh, as I was getting, you know, as I was approaching the end of high school, I just had this, I had this kind of realization that deep inside, I had this uncertainty about what I wanted to do. I felt like a lot of this vision I had for my life was a result of expectations I felt other people had, whether they were real or manufactured from my imagination. And so I kind of took a different route. I went to the state school. I was really hesitant to take on debt. I think that was something my parents did really well for me, even for even for school, you know, even with great scholarships, like going to Ivy League schools versus like the local state schools, even if you have great scholarships, materially different what that's going to cost. And so because I wasn't 100% sure, I tried to play it safe and just avoid the debt. So I went to the state school, went to college for free, graduated with, with no student debt, fortunately. But in college, I had a very pivotal experience. I got involved with an early stage startup very early on in my experience. And honestly, I was just so bored in school. I was the kid who could walk in and and do well on tests and, you know, read read the book the night before, like cram the night before and just go do well on tests. That learning came naturally to me. But getting involved with this startup really created this dilemma for me because I had this thing outside that I felt like it, I was gaining actual valuable experience outside of school. And it's how I wanted to spend my time. It was what I was most interested in. And then I had, you know, contrasted that, I had this kind of school academic environment where everything was about jumping through hoops. I just butt heads with professors from day one. And a lot of that was like, you know, if I need, if I know the material, then just, you know, give me my stamp and let's, let's move on. I don't need to also please you or agree with you or show up or like jump through all these hoops that are just unnecessary. And so very early on for me, this rub between innovation and then compliance or subordination was something that it made two paths emerge for me. So by the time I got out of college, I had several years work work experience at this startup that went from literally half a dozen people to several thousand people. And it was a wild ride. It opened my eyes. I knew I wanted to be involved in that type of world. I knew nothing about how to start a business or what business or what I could offer that was valuable. I knew I needed to go figure out how to do that. So when I got out of college, that was my mission. Everyone that I knew at that point in my life said, well, you need to go back to school. You should go get a law degree or an MBA. Those are two very clear, highly likely likely routes that will get you, you know, get you into business and allow you to learn how to start a business. And again, I was like, okay, well, that's what I'm going to plan on right now. That's the safe story. But 
something about that rubs me the wrong way. Why isn't there a better route to go build these skills? And so I started taking every job I could out of college, just getting, you know, had a like something like nearly 30 jobs before I was 25. Wow. <laughs> so some of those were unpaid sort of informal things. Some of those were freelance, but I had this wild variety of different experiences while I was trying to save up money for law school. And that's when I met Isaac Morehouse, the founder of Praxis. And this is very, very early on in the game of, of Praxis's story. And and he asked me a question that just blew my socks off. He said, what, what makes you come alive? And I was about, I was in my early 20s at this point in time. And, you know, for somebody who's in your early 20s, you can probably, who's gone the traditional route, you can probably relate to this. People always like to ask you, like, where are you going to school? What are you studying? This very like linear path is pushed on you, whether it's intentional or not. It's just so fundamental to the cultural narrative. And that was the first time somebody had asked me a question that I was like, oh my gosh, I don't have like a really good answer to that. I'm interested in a lot of stuff, but like I'm not, that's not what I'm spending my time on. And so I had to, I had to, it caught me off guard and it got the wheels turning because, you know, later Isaac challenged me. He's like, you seem like a smart, hardworking, ambitious young adult. He's like, give me one year. Let me make some introductions for you, introduce you to some business owners, entrepreneurs that are working on cool stuff. And if one year from now, you don't have more clarity about what it is you want to do, then go back to school. It's still going to be there. This is literally like a zero risk bet. And so I never looked back. It took me, you know, it took me 30 seconds to think that through. And then I pushed the chips into the middle of the table and, you know, the rest was history. I had an awesome experience uh, that involves apprenticeship and, and, you know, kind of, there's another story there in terms of how I wound up working with the Praxis team years later, but it was at the very sort of foundation of it was this idea of permissionless, this a permissionless approach to building your life and career. And that just fired me up. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people would resonate with your journey, right? That like, you know, you're trying a bunch of things, nothing quite fits. Nobody asks you like what makes you come alive, right? It's just, you're kind of moving from one thing to the next. It's like, you know, you're in high school. It's always the, the next question is like, well, what college are you going to? Not like, is college even like the right thing for what you want to do or what makes you come alive, right? Or in the next step in your journey. At least when I went to school, which was, you know, 2009 is when I graduated high school. So, you know, at that time it was just like so accepted. I feel like now the idea of like gap years, alternative approaches, it's a little bit, a little bit more acceptable. I, I, I don't know if this is accurate. When I remember it was when I was in college, 2009 was like the peak of number of people going to college. And I think it's decreased right since then, like on an on a absolute numbers basis. And that's encouraging. Like it's not encouraging if you're a higher ed administrator, but it is very encouraging if you are, I think, looking at how to make or how to help young people live fulfilling and effective lives and also be useful members of the, of the economy too. I think maybe now is a good time to talk about debt, right? I think that was uh, something you guys, I, I've seen on the practice website, at least you talk about it a lot. You know, how does that play into this? Like the cost of college and, you know, and then your alternative business model. Yeah, it's something that's, it's, it's so critical when I think about the value of a program like ours and alternatives to college compared to the traditional you know, offering today that schools have, especially if you're a, if you're an individual who is, you don't have options other than student debt as a way of financing your education. I would say 
you better make really damn sure that what you want to, you know what you want to get out of college if you're going to take on the debt. Because the worst thing, this this seriously, it it's upsetting to me on a personal level, but it's a horrible thing that so many young adults, they get saturated in this idea that it's like your education is a priceless investment. By any means necessary, you've got to go get that degree. It's so upsetting every time I hear this story. I talk to a young adult who's like, you know, everybody told me I should go to college. I got in. I realized I had no idea what I want to do with my life. A year or two in, I decided to drop out. I still have all this student debt. I feel like I got cheated, not not just out of the college experience, but like I feel like I got just panhandled this lie about the best way to go about. And we'll put the argument about whether college is effective or good or bad or any of that on the shelf for a second. Just the fact that, you know, the fact that so many young adults who aren't sure what they want to do default to that decision and, and student debt, it's, it's a really bad thing, especially played out over time, because now you have that debt burden, which reduces your optionality. I see this too in graduates all the time is I get out of college, I have this cloud of student debt over me, and I'm making all of my decisions from this spot of of scarcity and like fear. It's like, okay, I've got to double down on the safe route now. I have to have a job to make these payments now. And maybe once I make those payments, you know, finally 25 years from now when my student's loans are paid off, then I can go do whatever I want to do. And that just never happens. It doesn't happen in our society too, because then then what happens, you know, people eventually, you know, they get married, maybe their spouse has student debts, they take on a mortgage, they get a car loan. Like before you know it, you have, you just can't escape that route. And so it's just a path. It's a path that it drives people to continue to double down at every step, down a bad route that's not actually getting them closer to, to answering the big questions in life. Like, what would bring me fulfillment? What do I like to work on? The question I brought up earlier, what makes you come alive? That's why it's so critical for me is even if I look past my own opinions about college, like let's just talk practically for a second. Unless you know what you want to do, it's very difficult to assess the level of risk that is appropriate to try and accomplish that, that thing. Yeah. And it's very hard at 18 years old to know what you want to do. Like, that's the other thing. What have you been exposed to in high school that would tell you what you want to do? You know, it's like some people have. Some people are very lucky that at 18, they do know what they want to do with the rest of their life. But I would argue the vast majority of people don't. You know, I think that's the other thing is like, and, and then it's hard to know what you want to do when you're not exposed to anything. And I think the other thing in college that right now is one of the issues with traditional higher ed is you learn a lot of like academic things, but a lot of those things don't really relate to what's going to happen after you're 22 and you're graduated and now you got to figure out this real world. And I think, I mean, so I was a, in, I was a chemical engineer in college and my complaint with our program uh, at Carnegie Mellon was that it was very focused on sending you to a PhD program. So it was like much less focused on industry. They used to have a co a, a co-op program, right? Where you, I think it's co-op or no where you're basically like working you're like working while you're in the program that they got rid of that uh i forget what that's called there's a word for it i'm not an apprentice but it's something it's kind of similar to that where it's like a five year instead of a four year but you're working simultaneously so you're taking like a little bit less on the class side but you're learning something like that something like that but they got rid of that program 
So if you're in that, you know, you're in that program, you have no idea what is like my day-to-day life going to be if I don't get a PhD and I just go to just go work as a chemical engineer. Like you have no exposure to what that is uh, through your classes. So, I mean, it's hard. It's hard that it's hard to blame the students. Let's put it that way for feeling lost in that type of environment. And you guys, I mean, you guys take a very different approach, but it sounds like it was born out of this frustration with how the the current system works. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, it, it's it's definitely that frustration resonates, and that was a big part of it. It was also just noticing this this sort of imbalance in the market. There are all these young adults that are are hungry, most of them in college, that are saying, "Hey, I'm eager to work." Everybody says, "I need experience, I need skills, I need all these things." There are no nobody's hiring. And then on the other side of the market, there's all these entrepreneurs and businesses like that. I'm always hiring. I just can't find good people. I can't find people who want to work hard and learn. And it's like, okay, that is, that's a clear imbalance in what's happening in the world. There is a more practical alternative out there. And we've got to figure out a way to, to bring that to bear. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's so true, right? It's like, I mean, there's those famous memes that are like, uh, you know, some like a technology is two years old. And then the job application says like seven years experience required. It's ridiculous. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you're right. You're right. It's like this mismatch out there between comp- what companies are looking for. And then the fact that there are students who do want that kind of experience. Uh, and then that's what you guys are kind of marrying together. Yeah, definitely the access that we can create for young adults into awesome businesses. And the funny thing is... You know, if you've you spent any time looking through job postings, like I think most companies do a poor job of articulating or clearly defining or, or maybe even thinking through what is it, what problem am I trying to solve by hiring somebody? And so I use this, I copy and paste, you know, I, I have an idea of this job title that I think my company should have this person. So I copy and paste this job description and I list out all these things. And I think there's this common misconception that it's like, okay. Well, and I think this is particularly bad for people coming out of college is, okay, this is just a new test for me to pass. I have to pass all the job requirements that are listed. This is just not true. Companies don't care in many cases that you have all those perfect things. They want somebody who can come in and learn the job functions and perform the responsibilities that are expected. And that's not always somebody who has all of the credentials or all of the, the requirements that are listed. What people often want more is work ethic. If you have a demonstrated track record of work ethic, even better, you have actual job experience. If you can show that you're somebody who can think outside the box, you can be creative, you can hustle, you're gonna show up. Like you are head and shoulders above the average job applicant. If you can figure out how to actually communicate though, that's the hard part is is not just having the skills, but convincing somebody else that you're worth taking the bet on. And you know, if you've been in school for 22, 23 years of your life, it's very hard to recognize that there is a way to go get your foot in the door that doesn't involve following all the rules to a T. Yeah, because that's been trained in you for so many years during that that education process. I mean, do you think it starts earlier? Like, do you think so? Part of me feels that the by the time you get to college, right, it's like you're going to have to now retrain yourself with all these mentalities and behaviors, right? Because you've been playing this like test game for tw- you know your entire life since you were like in kindergarten, basically, or maybe even earlier. And then now you're telling me that those tests, that's not how the real world operates. So is it a deeper kind of problem than just 
a college problem? Like, is it, you know, does it start earlier and are there ways to, this doesn't have anything to do with your company necessarily, but just, this is more just like me asking you, does there, you know, how do you feel about this? Like on a bigger level than just uh, higher ed? Yeah. So Paul Graham has a great essay that I, I love that I think kind of gets to the heart of this. It's so much bigger than just education, but he, he talks about, I think it's called on wealth or it's, it's about how wealth is created. And I think a lot of people think about wealth in terms of status or money or these extrinsic signals or extrinsic properties. It's not just those things like wealth isn't isn't money. You know, money is a medium for the exchange of wealth. Uh, And I think that school, it changes the way we think about the things that really matter. Um, It it leads us to chase these other sort of external validators of, of something that's more fundamental. And that's part of the problem, you know, like having a degree and a big salary does not equal happiness. I think school leads us to believe that there are sort of these milestones like if I have a good degree that allows me to get a good, safe, stable job that allows me to earn X, Y, Z dollars, that translates into happiness. That's the formula. That's not the formula. It may be for a select you know, set of people, but what what actually is is a lot more likely to lead to happiness for any individual is figuring out the unique value that you can create for other people figuring out how to solve problems for other people with the insights you bring how to marry sort of that you know that that combination of the things that you're uniquely interested in and the things that other people value and how to marry those things together as a way to construct how you spend your time and School does not enable us to think about all of those sort of more fundamental things like how can I be useful in the world? How can I figure out what I'm uniquely good at and and what where I have a distinct advantage to go be valuable solving XYZ problem? And I think that getting to the heart of understanding one, how wealth is created and what real wealth is aside from just money, like it's all these other aspects of an enriched life and an enriching life, not just money and material success. And it's very hard to navigate through the traditional schooling system and come out with this more rich, thorough, fulfilled, like complete picture of like, what is the goal we're all working towards? If the goal that we're all here on this big rock spinning around the sun is just like, go get a 40 hour nine to five job and make six figures and like, have a little bit left over for our kids after we die and the government takes their share. Like that's a pretty meaningless existence. Like it's no wonder so many young adults feel nihilistic if that's the, uh, the narrative that they bought into. Yeah. I mean, this is going to take us down a rabbit hole, but I love it. This is, (laughs) this is where, yeah, where it gets fun. I mean, I think this nihilistic attitude is a big, large, in a large part driven by this sort of like trap that people fall into. And then, I mean, this, you definitely know more about this than me. So I'm uh, curious to hear your thoughts on it, but like the student loan trap is kind of one that it's very hard to escape uh, once you fall into it. And you're 18 years old when you make this decision before you know anything about anything. And uh, I've had this conversation with other people where it's like, if you were 18 and you wanted to start a business and you wanted to get $300,000 loan, like, I mean, you could be an accomplished entrepreneur and it's hard to get $300,000 loan for a a new business in general. And it's like, you might have the best track record. I mean, you're talking about an 18 year old, no chance. If you want to go to college, no problem. 
So why does it work like that? I'm sure there's incentives that I, I don't understand behind the scenes that make a bank more likely to give, not more likely, it's like easy to get a student loan for, for that amount of money, you know, if you're going to college. Like, so tell me, yeah, tell me about why that is, if you know. Yeah, well, it's easy to get a federal student loan. It's not so easy to get a private student loan. And and there's a distinct difference between the two in terms of what goes into the underwriting criteria of different types of loans. That's probably a, a, a different rabbit trail that's less interesting. But it's, you know, the government loves to botch price signals. So that's what they're best at is like forcing everyone to acknowledge them as an intermediary in the market where they are dismantling the price mechanisms that are taking place. Interest rates are a great example of this. Like they've been artificially held low for years and years. And now we're seeing like, we're seeing what happens when those interest rates are, are slowly being released back to get a little bit closer to what they should be. But the same thing to some extent is happening in the student loan market. These federally backed loans, student loans, they, they basically act like subsidies to schools that you know taxpayers and this poor individual who signed the papers like they're the ones eating the cost for it there's no real real risk underwriting involved in those loans though see like because as a society or 51 percent of the voting population in the united states like seems to favor hey education is good investment there are all sorts of subsidies and all sorts of education spending and all sorts of efforts that are aimed at helping create education access. Student loans is one example of this, like the federally backed ones. So the government steps in and says, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter if you're a good risk or not. Everyone should have access to education in this country. And so here's money. And they go to schools and they write a check to the schools. And now this individual owes this. Well, this has been happening for decades and decades, and it's gotten really bad since the 90s. And so what, what do universities do? Well, we've got this easy money coming in from the government so we can raise tuitions. And so it creates the snowball effect that the more loans drives more, you know, drives higher tuition prices, which is that's probably the most insidious aspect of it all is it's driving prices higher and higher. It's actually devaluing the product similar to inflation. You know, the more people that have degrees, the less inherently value valuable right, because is. it's a signal. It's yeah. again, that's also a signal. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's devaluing the the signal in the first place. Like if there were if 30 teams won the Super Bowl every year, right? It's like <laughs> what does that even mean it's, at that point? Everybody gets a trophy. Yeah. It 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 stops acting as, you know, it loses the potency potency of the signal. But contrasting like the federal student loans to a private student lender. Like uh, I'll use an example when I when I went to law school. I was like deep and deeply idealistic. Like I'm not going to take federal student loans for law school just out of principle. I'm going to go to a private lender. And I, I under, you know, I went through this student loan process and, you know, they came back and I had good scholarships. I did, wasn't going to have to take out a ton, but you know, they came back and you're like, you know, you're a 22 year old kid with no credit history. Like you're going to need a co-signer or you're going to need to, you know, come back when you have a credit history. And why did they do that? Well, they're actually underwriting risk. They're not like passing off the risk to taxpayers or, you know, like not actually underwriting it in the case of like uh, federal student loans. And so, you know, if you think about the way real estate loans or any other business loan is underwritten, like they're assessing someone's likelihood or ability to pay that back. And it's more than just the individual's ability. You know, that likelihood is important. 
they want to see a business plan. They want to have an appraisal on a property. Like lenders want to go see, hey, what is this loan collateralized by? Well, you can't say that a degree is going to act as collateral, especially especially when these loans are being underwritten without any kind of eye to what what path somebody's studying, what that person's success rate in school is, what the likelihood that they get employed in a particular path. Like there are all these other kind of insidious things that are just layered on top of each other that make it a really bad deal for students. In addition to like how people go about repaying them, which is also bad because most people just, they don't understand personal finance at a really high enough level to be signing these types of agreements in many cases, which that's another rabbit trail. Let's go down that. So (laughs) let's talk about that. Yeah. So one of the bad things that happens is a lot of people get out and there there are deferment periods on student loans. You know, some loans offer the ability, I think, to defer payments. You know, if you go back to grad school, for instance, this is one way to defer payments. I go take out more loans. I'm going back to school. And so I can delay those repayments. Some loans have interest only period. So the balance, the principal balance isn't growing. You're paying down the interest, you know, every month or annually. And so the balance is staying the same there's usually some kind of window after graduation or after you leave school where this repayment kicks in. Well, there are all these different options with your student loans now. You can make minimum monthly payments, which is bad. You, in many cases, those minimum monthly payments aren't even covering the full cost of interest. And so what happens, you'll see, you'll see this on Twitter all the time. If you, you ever see, you know, student loan posts going viral is like, I've paid off twice what I originally owed and the balance is even bigger. It was like, well, why is that? Well, minimum payments are one reason. There are also other ways of of basically making reduced payments over time that are kind of built into to education loans that just gives them all sorts of flexibility. Well, that flexibility is bad because the loans just don't go away. They're going to keep growing. This is the bad thing is that students, you know, they don't often know how these things work and they don't understand how loans in general work, and they may not have good personal finance uh, practices in place. And also, they may not actually be getting the job outcomes that they thought they would get as a result of having a degree. And so they're kind of in a dilemma in many cases. What they see is, how do I make the lowest possible monthly payment? That's what seems to solve the short-term problem. So I'm going to pursue this. And then before you know it, it's snowballed out of control. It's, It's gotten, you know, in many cases, like, put people in very, very bad situations. And, and I don't think this may have changed it's recently. A it's a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap. Yeah. You know? But I don't think you can, uh, you can't declare bankruptcy with student loans. You, that may have changed recently. I know that there's been some, some talk and legislation surrounding that, but you now have this debt that you can't, you literally cannot escape. There's no way to, to, you know, to declare bankruptcy and start back over if it doesn't pan out whether that's good or bad, that's just the fact of the matter. Yeah, and I think that's to your point about price signals, right? Like this all distorts what the price of the loan is. Like if you can't declare bankruptcy on it, you know, if you think about like a business loan, for example, and obviously I don't even think business loans are priced properly, but uh, because of the interest rate issue that we talked about with the Fed, but if they were normalized for like what you're studying, how, you know, how good you are at that, however you define that, I don't know how you'd, you'd put a metric against that. But it's like, I mean, it's pretty obvious that there's certain majors that do better than others financially post-graduation. And that's simply because of the the demand for those jobs. Like a software engineer is going to do better than like an English major on average. I'm not saying every software engineer will do better than every English major, 
but the average one was going to have a much easier time getting a job versus the other. So the loan isn't reflecting that. Like the price of that loan is not reflecting that. You could argue, you could actually make the case, and this may be what you guys are building a Praxis actually. Um, you can make the case that if the if businesses are demanding a certain skill set and you're training students and providing that, the student might not even have to pay because the businesses might pay that institution or maybe they'll, they have to pay a lot less than what a, a, another type of major would do where it's like, hey, we're going to, sure, we'll educate you on this, but uh, you know, we're not getting paid on the other side because there's no businesses demanding this skill set. Yeah, there, there are tons of different models. And I think that one of the important things I try to keep in mind is, is like this idea that there's one perfect one size fits all solution. I don't think that's true. I think that an additional part of the beef I have with college is this idea that they have a monopoly on what you do after high school or how you access the job market, which is just not true. But it also creates this kind of mindset that competition in that space should be artificially stifled. It's like, no, there's college or there's trade schools or you're a loser. And that's just not how the world works. I really like the idea. I love that there are all these different boot camps for all these different things popping up. I love that, you know, I'm very proud of the program we've built and are continuing to build and have success with as well. But there should be this robust marketplace of options that help people with different interests or different, you know, skill sets they want to develop fill different market needs, like in a truly, you know, in a truly rich economy and ecosystem, that's just what's going to happen naturally. But because one, student loans are easy money to get, and two, the cultural narrative and, and myth that you need college, you know, we've been artificially re suppressing alternatives and innovation in this space for, for decades. And eventually the chickens are going to come home to roost, as they say. One thought I had as you were, we were talking about the trap just now, right, on the student loan side. I mean, if you could wave a magic wand and fix it, how do, how do you fix it? Like, what is the, I mean, there's, there's sort of two problems. So before you answer this question, there's kind of the two problems. There's like all the people that have the debt right now and who are in this trap, basically. And then there's the future people, right? So like, you know, I think those are different solutions because there's people who are, those are basically two different questions. Maybe not two different solutions. Those are two different questions. Like, how do you fix the people who are stuck in it right now? And then how is the, how do you do it moving forward so you prevent this kind of thing from happening? Yeah, first of all, that sounds like a terrible job to be the person who who is trying to solve this. Like, it's just a terrible job. Like, you know, I think most people think that it's the government's job to solve that. It's It's like, that's a tough job because, you know, in all the talk about, what should we do for all these borrowers who took out this money? It's a tricky dilemma. You know, if you forgive all the student loans, now who's picking up the bill for that? Well, now the people who have been responsible are the ones that are, you know, in, in addition to the borrowers themselves, like everybody's tax dollars, you're creating another problem. And this is this is why I don't tend to think, I absolutely am vocal about this, is that when the government tries to solve problems, it just typically creates more problems. It's just, you cannot, it's this problem of like local versus global optimization. You can't just try and solve this one tiny thing without create, creating this bad ripple effect through the rest of the system. That's why like entrepreneurship is typically a better way to, to approach these problems in isolation. There's probably some component of financial literacy that is involved. I don't think it's like mandated learning. Maybe, maybe for the people that are taking out student loans, there's some required like 
level of financial literacy you have to prove before you can get approved for a loan. I'm not sure what it is. Like create an amortization table for me and make sure and sign it and make sure that you understand what you're doing here and how these repayments work. There are different things like that that could likely curb it. For the people who are in debt, in student debt, like honestly, go subscribe to Dave Ramsey's stuff. He's helped millions of people. And while that isn't necessarily the full, complete financial education for everybody, it's a great way to start thinking about debt and how to get out of that. And like, I think if you're carrying this debt, hoping that somebody's going to forgive it someday, it turns you into an irresponsible borrower. And that's a bad thing. That's a bad psychology to have in the world as an employee, as somebody who probably has more creative capacity than you're unleashing in the world because you have this debt. Like that's just, it's bad played out. Long story short, I don't know how to solve it. I could throw out a bunch of ideas. It's a bad situation. I think that just tons of different innovative people attacking it in different ways, like creating alternatives that don't require like Praxis, you know, I'll plug it because that's what I'm familiar with. But like opening up different avenues so future borrowers, you know, future students don't become the same kind of borrowers that, you know, their older siblings and parents were. What are some other projects in the space that you think are doing a good job with this? So this is a, a bit unconventional. This isn't like direct competitor to, you know, Praxis or any boot camp space or whatever, but a different way of solving a similar problem is companies like SoFi, Lending Tree. Um, there are like half a dozen others that I'm not thinking of right now. So one angle to solve this is like companies that are consolidating student debt and they are creating incentive structures for people to be responsible getting out of debt. And they're trying to create better financial vehicles to basically pay off that debt. And in many cases, they're buying that student debt at discounts and they're creating a better lending structure that's more manageable for somebody to get out of debt. That's one way. There are uh, like Prosper is a loan marketplace. This is an interesting one as well. So it's like peer-to-peer -peer loan purchasing where you know somebody who is in need of money or maybe they have a student loan or something like that, they can't get traditional financing to consolidate student debts. Now individuals can go fund these loans and they get to underwrite them. You know, They get to go through underwriting, assess the risk and decide if they wanna invest in these or not. They get a return on their money. Plus they help somebody else out who needs money. That's another really cool a way to attack this broader problem. Aside of that, there are tons of different really cool sort of alternative education things popping up all over all of the boot camps, like I mentioned, offering different routes into high paying careers, offering different routes into just careers you may not even you may not have even thought were accessible to you without, you know, two hundred thousand dollars of student loans, like all of those things happening across different segments of the, the entire marketplace, all of those innovations, I see them as net positives. Yeah, I think also a follow-up question or related question is I've seen a lot of programs focus on software engineering just because that's like, you know, probably maybe the most obvious. It's the easiest probably to do remote versus some other things. Have you seen a lot in things that are not software engineering that are also taking innovative approaches? And is there anything you can talk specifically about? Yeah, so some, some companies have tried different things as well. Um, I know that you know, so like we're we're great at non-technical stuff. Praxis, we are we are almost hyper focused on entry level non-technical roles. So think like sales, marketing, customer support, business operations, uh, people that know they want to start a, a business someday. 
they don't know how. So like that true apprenticeship, go apprentice and entrepreneur, there are paths like that. We're hyper-focused on those types of things. There are a lot of other boot camps that are hyper-focused on one little, one skill area. So, you know, there used to be Gen M, I believe it's called Acadium now. They do marketing apprenticeships. They have marketing uh, courses and that program seems to have quite a few students as well. But again, it's a, it's a different, you know, different remote program. There are, I mean, hundreds of sales boot camps as well. There may be some customer support boot camps. Even outside of formal programs, though, there are all sorts of like mastermind programs and groups and Discord communities and things that are popping up that are awesome. Like information access has become so cheap and the ability to find other people who are interested in the same things and form a community around it and learn like the hustle. The hustle has trends. This is a great sort of informal example of this. Uh, Cody Sanchez creates a ton of like small business content and has a community that's similar to this. Like, how do you go break into entrepreneurship? Well, there's probably degree programs. You could go the traditional route or you could go this unconventional method and go congregate and learn from other people who are already doing it informally and do that through a, a shared community that's interested in the same topics where there's ideas like the proliferation of ideas in those communities, it just happens so fast that it opens up tons of pathways and it and it creates sort of the right environment for serendipity. And that's what I love about all this innovation that's happening and all these different programs. It's like when you start having all like lots of smart people with energy and, and hustle and some hopeful idealism sprinkled in, like they all start working on this big, broader problem all at once in their own little special way. Like you just get a lot of cool opportunities. And it, not only do those people benefit, but the end users, the end customers, the, the students who felt like there used to only be like specific paths, like everybody is better off as a result of those things. Yeah, I think that that makes, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So to move on to uh, something that I think was on my list, definitely wanted to ask you about. So this whole apprentice type approach to me feels like almost a return to historical norms. Because if you think about it, right, like this whole idea of going to college for four years, maybe more years for grad school and stuff. Again, you're the expert. You tell me if I'm wrong. But in, to my, in my mind, that's a relatively like 20th century type thing, which I mean, I'm sure it existed in one way, shape or form before that. But it wasn't the thing that everybody went and did. It wasn't the like standard path that you were supposed to go down. So do you feel that this is like a return to historical norms in some ways or like maybe a blending of the two approaches or... Like, how do you think about that? I think we're perfecting the apprenticeship program. We are perfecting it. There's some nostalgia, I guess, to the idea of like reviving the old apprenticeship forms. There are probably some things that, that were like not ideal about traditional apprenticeship contracts in, you know, like pre 19th century America and Europe and everywhere. It's like, you know, you, you'd be 11 years old and you'd sign a 10 year contract that was either unpaid or very low paid and like you're locked in for 10 years like that it, it was a different time in different place and you know different <laughs> predatory in a different way than the student loan thing yeah yeah it's yeah it's, it's there's definitely uh things that could be improved upon that but i think a component that is critical to our success and also really critical for future young adults as they think about what they want to do is this idea of career discovery at the start is the ability. And this is key to the, the idea of apprenticeship in the first place is 
go try something before you commit, you know, tons of time and energy and financial resources like college to this decision that you're not even sure if that's something that's going to excite you. So career discovery is baked into our, our model of apprenticeship program. Let's help you learn about business, the different aspects of a successful business and explore those different skill areas and, and paths as a way of helping you identify one or two skill areas that really excite you. Now, I tell people this all the time, and this is something that we, we could have talked about earlier too, is like, I think it's really dangerous to perpetuate this myth that there's like one perfect thing you're going to do for the rest of your life. And like your biggest struggle in life and the pressure you should feel is like to figure out what that one perfect thing is. The truth of the matter is there's probably a lot of things you would be interested in doing. What may be an easier approach is let's cross some things off that you definitely don't want to do. And the faster you can validate, you know, you can kind of narrow the playing field of options, the easier it is to, to realize how exciting some of these opportunities are because you stop having that FOMO of all the other things you could be doing. You've crossed some options off. That's progress. It's not a failed experiment to, you know, get a year down the road and be like, hey, I now realize there are three things I thought I wanted to do that I don't want to do. And there's this other thing I'm kind of interested in and I've got a job doing it. Like that's a pretty good outcome. And so that's where I'd say, the apprenticeship model that bakes in that discovery process, plus the actual experience and the ability to go learn from somebody who's already down the path that you think you want to go down. Those are like the critical elements of what I would say is like the perfect apprenticeship. Yeah, that makes complete sense. The interesting thing that you were just talking about too, about learning from a peer, like somebody who's doing what you what you want to do, I think... That's so valuable because there's so much that this isn't just a critique on college. I think this is also probably true if you're just listening to podcasts or watching YouTube videos and stuff. There's so much nuance in like any job. I mean, not just, I mean, not just entrepreneurship, but any, any job that you do that you can't really properly convey or understand from just listening to people talk about it. You kind of got to go try it, but you can try it with like a mentor or something. So I think you brought up like working with a startup early on in your career, kind of being very influential. I think mine was pretty, mine was pretty similar. So like I, I had a very, very small, like, you know, the normal, like, I mean, I was basically coaching uh, some sports in, in uh, high school and, you know, ultimately like instead of working for somebody else doing that, I started like started my own little coaching thing. It's not a big, not really a real business, but you know, it was, it was cool to, to kind of try that out. But then I ended up working for a couple different startups like on the side while I was in in college. And that kind of really taught me like, oh, this is what it's about, like starting a company. And I mean, I did have to learn a lot on my own. And there's so much in entrepreneurship you don't know until you're the actual founder. But there were some growing pains that I was able to learn just secondhand, just like seeing and, and also better understand that this is something I actually like. It's not just uh, something that sounds cool. Right. And um, yeah, I guess like that part is also kind of missing in the traditional college experience that you don't really get to work with somebody who's doing what you want to do yet. It is true. And like in many cases, you know, there's professors that like they don't even work in the field. Some of them, maybe they have actual experience in some cases, like you're learning from somebody who's teaching you about something that happened in the past that they don't actually they're not speaking from that nuanced personal experience. That's not who you want to be your teacher in your journey towards a specific goal is someone who hasn't gone through that experience. And that's not just true of college. That's true of like anything you want to learn. Go learn from the person who's actually done it, who who can anticipate the hurdles you're going to, to encounter 
and can help you adapt and prepare for those things. And like they've lived in your shoes, so they understand all the stuff, not just like the actual knowledge, but like the emotions you're going to go through and all those things you're going to have to tackle. That's it's a huge part of apprenticeship and and even just like going out in the real world and making progress anywhere. Like learn from, you know, be be very selective in the mentors and the people that you want to learn from. Yeah, and you'd mentioned a little while ago in your previous uh, the previous question I asked like you said you get to in practice you allow people to try out a bunch of different things and then cross off stuff that they don't like or doesn't fit well with them. Is that kind of similar to like a rotation program in medical like for a medical school student or something where they're trying out a bunch of different specialties and then they say, "Oh, this is the one I want to go into after that." Yeah, so we we do this in a very quick manner. You know, the the program itself is a year long and in many cases people are starting jobs month 7. So, majority of our apprentices are getting hired then. So, there are some shortcuts baked into that that you know, you wish you could have somebody go do a month in every position and get paid to learn. And and it's just, it's a bit difficult, a bit messy for, for businesses. It's not like the ideal experience. So, you know, we do it through a combination of curriculum, projects, advising and coaching, and then workshops. So one thing that I do like is our, our apprentices, by the time they get through, you know, first six months, they've probably had 30 to 50 different workshops they've participated in with 30 to 50 different professionals from different walks of life and different careers and and different stories, different routes they took to success. And so think of it as kind of like rotating career day combined with, I'm actually working on these projects. You know, I'm consuming some curriculum, but the crux of it is like projects, workshops, coaching, and trying to get that quickly. And the reason... I like that approach rather than sort of the the longer ended approach is you don't have to stay doing the same job you get through a program. You know, like you have lifetime access to the higher network, but even this is true outside of our programs, true for any young adult or anyone in any walk of your career, like whatever you're doing now, you have the ability to change paths. And so it's about helping them gain exposure and a broader understanding of what's possible out there. That's probably the first hurdle everybody has to overcome. I should have asked this earlier. Is there any kind of like placement fee or like percentage of income that you guys get, uh, like income share agreements, right? The, the ISAs, right? I think that's the term for them. Do you guys do any of that or is it just a flat like tuition that people pay for the program and then they get lifetime access to the community after? Yeah, so we don't do ISAs. We deliberated on that for a long time. We do not like ISAs. I do not like them uh, for, for a variety of different reasons. One is the psychology of it for both sides. There's this idea of skin in the game that I think is so critical to actually aligning interests, both for the the apprentice or student or and, and the organization. And there's this idea, without that skin in the game, you're going to devalue something. You're not going to appreciate the full value of that. And the other side of the equation is like, I never wanted to be in a situation where I had to sue my customers. Like I want to have a good relationship. I want it truly to be a transformative experience going through our program. I don't want it to be where like you're down the road and you're starting to question the value of that experience because you're suddenly making these payments that you just don't understand anymore. And, or you start wondering like, was this actually worth it? You know, you postpone the payment until after the values had, and that's, that's kind of a difficult mechanism for aligning incentives. As far as, you know, how our tuition works, it's flat $12,000. When we have formal business partners, there is a placement fee 
for high quality, you know, for, for placements whenever they hire somebody from our network, but it's not required that you go work for one of our business partners. The business partner placement fee, the, the apprentices pay the tuition to us. Yeah. So that kind of aligns incentives because a business would be paying recruiters like that. That's a pretty standard model. It's not a, you're not, you guys didn't invent that model. You just are, are participating in the model that already exists for that. And then for students, they're not giving you a share of what they're making afterwards. Correct. Yeah. And their earnings are great and they don't have that percentage taken out of it. And so, you know, the other thing is like, if their income's increasing, they're not increasing their payments. Like they owe the same thing. It's flat rate, you know, amortized loan, you know, it's the same flat rate regardless. And so that I think is just a better experience for everybody, um, all parties involved. Yeah. And I mean, so the counter argument somebody might say is like, well, then you don't have an incentive to make sure your students get uh, great jobs. And the counterpoint to that argument would be, well, the more, the better that our students do, the more people will want to participate in our program. Well, that, and we also give a hundred percent guarantee. Like if somebody doesn't land a job making, you know, $30,000 per year as a minimum guarantee within, you know, by the end of the program, we refund every dollar. I think that's an even better guarantee. And yeah, you get your money back. Plus, you know, you still have all these benefits. You've made, you know, hopefully built some awesome skills. You've grown your personal network. There are other advantages. And, you know, I still am hopefully optimistic that there are a lot of people that have bought into this idea of ISAs and and not just ISAs, but this idea that it's like, let's explore alternative funding mechanisms for helping people go figure out what they want to do and acquire the knowledge and skills that they need to go be more productive and increase their human capital. Like that should be the conversation is like, what are the best ways? I think that trying to say this particular way is the best versus this is it's somewhat futile. Yeah, because there's going to be different types of people, different types of programs, different things that everyone's looking for. I mean, it's the definition of like a market. That's why you want to market and not a one size fits all approach on the guarantee. Like this is more from your business perspective, not the businesses for recruiting perspective. Like, are there risks in you doing that? Do you have any minimum requirements? Like, how do you determine who gets a spot with you or not? Is it open to just anybody who wants to join? They can join, I guess, like. I guess my worry, if I was, uh, if I was running your business and this is, I'm purely on the outside. So I'm curious, you know, I'm sure you guys have thought about this. Like, how do you just like protect from somebody just joining for the sake of joining? And then like two weeks later, they're like, yeah, I don't really want to do this. Now I got to get all my money back, but I still wasted two weeks of your time in this program. And I'm sure that has some costs for you. Yeah, absolutely. has some costs. There is definite risk involved in that. And I would say that, you know, part of our secret sauce is finding and identifying undiscovered talent and making bets on them. You know, we are making the bets of our our time and labor, if not, you know, let alone the financial risk to invest in young adults and helping them develop skills and then taking a bet on them when they go out in the job market and say, hey, this I'm from this program. That means something to the business partners we work with. You know, when we make that introduction, like, we hold ourselves to a certain level of quality and those businesses expect someone coming from our program to have a certain level of panache. It's not always tons of work experience, but it's definitely work ethic, intellectual curiosity and hustle, if not the actual hard skills in, in addition that we, we definitely want them to develop those. But it's those intangibles that, you know, if you can figure out how to measure for those effectively, you're really de-risking the the situation altogether. So there is an application process to the program. There's several things we're looking for. The work ethic, 
hustle, character, intellectual curiosity, all of those sort of soft skills that are missed by a raw credit score or a, you know, the typical college application in many cases. But it's more than just that too. We're also, I'm not offer somebody a spot in our program if we are confident that what they're trying to accomplish is not something we can do. Like if you want to go be a software engineer at Amazon or Facebook or probably software engineering at all, and you don't have those skills already, our program's not for you. That's not what we're good at. There are, go check out Lambda School or Iron Hack or like any of the hundreds of other programs that that is their bread and butter. That's where we can't help you. And I wish I could help everybody, but I think it's it's inherent in that risk is accepting there are only so many things you can be really good at. And we want to be the best at those things. And we want to be at the best at those things for the right type of customer. And so, you know, we've learned over time who is the customer we offer the most value for. I think it tends to be the person coming right out of high school or finishing a gap year or the college dropout who they feel like the options available to them today aren't the right ones for them. And they want something more. They want a more dynamic experience. They want to take the shortcut of like breaking directly into their career rather than sitting in school. And, you know, there are other attributes, but it's kind of all those things inherent in that that decision to offer a full guarantee is we've got to be really good at assessing risk, but it's not the same type of risk that most people are looking at. Yep. So a couple more things as we as we wrap up here. What does the future look like if you guys succeed? What is the education landscape look like or the options, let's say, for somebody who's finishing up high school and thinking about what's next? So maybe not just what practice is today, but what you guys hope to be in the in the future. Yeah. So I would say we're already succeeding at what we're doing. That's part of it. Like, you know, we're not trying to build we're not trying to build a new college. We're not trying to be college. We're not trying to compete with college. We're trying to build an exceptional world-class experience for the right type of young person. And we're doing that. And we're not trying to, you know, grow 500% per year, which is a strength of ours is like, we're very comfortable at this incremental long-term game we're playing and doing that by focusing on quality over sheer growth. So, you know, the more success we have, the more alumni we have. So marketing becomes easier, but you know, outside of the obvious advantages to us as a business, the obvious advantages to young adults are, I just, every time I think about the world five, 10, 20 years from now, where there are thousands more Praxis alumni who are young professionals or people in their thirties and forties at this point, they avoided student debt. They increased their earning potential. They focused on kind of prioritizing their own personal agency and taking this more self-directed approach to life. The ripple effect of those people out there living their best lives, not being wage slaves, working jobs they don't love, doing unfulfilling work, like that has such a tremendous positive ripple effect in the world of people who now have their creative capacity intact. They still have energy. They're not in a place of financial servitude that prevents them from go ch- going and chasing the, the best thing, they, the highest, most worthy goal they could go tackle. That's what excites the hell out of me in the long term. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I mean, that's that can like transform, transform a society, right? When people are not, when people are hopeful, when people have the ability to go pursue the things that they want, 
and then also the the skills to actually go accomplish a lot of those things. So if someone's listening and they're like, hey, this sounds really good, either as a business or as a, a student, you know, potential student, what's kind of the next step? Where should they go? Where, th- where can they find you guys? Yeah, discoverpraxis.com. You can find everything there. Always feel free to shoot me an email, Mitchell at discoverpraxis.com. Hit me up in Twitter DMs. Like, I am very accessible and always happy to field inquiries. What's your Twitter handle? At Mitchell underscore Earl. Cool. And with that, this has been awesome. I feel like I learned so much. I feel like we could have talked for another like two hours. Maybe we'll have to do a part two and part three in the future. Yeah, man. Thank you so much, Neil. Excited about this new show. Excited that I could be part of it. It's a great conversation. So thanks for thinking of me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Outside the System. If you found the episode valuable, you can go to Fountain or any other podcast 2.0 enabled player and leave us some sats. You can also leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's also really helpful if you share the episode on social media or with your friends, and also just tell people about the show, make sure they subscribe. It's all really helpful and spread the word. You can reach out to me anytime with feedback at the S on Twitter. See you guys next time.